BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There are a lot of popular ideas out there around marriage, family, and culture. Like, for example, that living together before marriage decreases your chances of divorce, people are having fewer children because children are expensive to raise, and society is becoming more secular because people leave religion in adulthood. Are these ideas actually borne out by the data? Today, we put that question to Lyman Stone a sociologist and demographer who crunches numbers from all the latest studies to find out what's going on in population, relationship, and familial trends. We dig into some of the counterintuitive findings he's discovered in his research and discuss the possible reasons that cohabitation is actually correlated with a higher chance of divorce, the effect that marrying later has on fertility, why the drop in the number of kids people are having isn't only about cost, but also about the rise in high-intensity parenting, and how the increase in societal secularization can actually be traced to kids, not adults. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash family myths. All right, Lyman Stone, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you. So you are a research fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and you focus on demographic changes in family life. And a lot of your research has looked at a lot of popular ideas that we have about family life. And today I want to talk about some of these ideas and maybe some of the counterintuitive findings you found with your research. One idea that's out there is that before people get married, you should live with your potential spouse first so that you can you know, know whether you're compatible or not. So let's talk about cohabitation. Like, First, what's the state of cohabitation in the United States today? So lots of people cohabit. <laughs> it's very common. Uh, if you go back to like the 1960s, marriages in the 1960s, only about 5% of them were to people who were cohabiting before marriage. Today, uh, it's over 70%, perhaps 75%. So there's been a huge increase in cohabitation over the last few decades. Just really this extraordinary social transition that, that I think it's kind of taken for granted now, but it's kind of snuck up and we're like, oh, wait, this this happened. Now, like everyone cohabits, it seems like. I mean, again, like three out of four marriages will have premarital cohabitation now. So that's a huge change in just two generations. When demographers look at this rise, do they attribute it to anything like societal changes, changes in religiosity? What's going on there? Yeah, there's tons of different <laughs> this is a very debated question. <laughs> what caused all this? There's a couple of things. One is actually there's a very nice paper that just came like the final version of it just came out recently. It's called Collateralized Marriage. And they argue, I, I think fairly persuasively, that the legal benefits of marriage have declined over time. That is, it's not as it doesn't give you the same guarantees it used to in the past. That is, you know, it doesn't protect you in the event of divorce. You have to pay, you know, men have to pay, well, parents, but usually men have to pay child support, even if they weren't married. The relative benefits to marriage have declined for men and women. People often talk about this as declined for men, but actually the benefits for women have, have declined very dramatically as well, uh, as this paper I mentioned shows pretty clearly. So as the benefits for formal marriage have declined, the, the thing is that a lot of the benefits of informal cohabitation have, have not declined, right? Living together is still convenient for sexual access and sharing rent and things like that. 
And furthermore, the, the taboos on premarital cohabitation or non-marital cohabitation have declined a lot. So in some sense, it got cheaper to cohabit and the benefits and the legal benefits and social benefits and protections of marriage declined. I mean, as a result, people still, they still want to have convenient sexual access to one another. So cohabitation rose, but because marriage was no longer a contract that really offered a lot of benefits for, particularly for lower socioeconomic status people, marriage really declined quite a lot. Though I should mention that, you know, this trend really is very class biased. Cohabitation rose the earliest and rose the most for lower socioeconomic status people. And higher socioeconomic status people are still less likely to cohabit and more likely to marry and they're more likely to marry directly with no prior cohabitation. That's interesting. Yeah, I think they also upper class or you know middle class and above, whatever, how you want to break it down, uh, less likely to divorce than working yeah, class, yeah. lower class. Yeah. Well, I mean, so this idea, okay, well, you should you know live with somebody before you get married because we can figure out if we're compatible. What does the research say about that? Does that actually, let's say someone cohabitates and they decide to get married. Will that cohabitation period improve the marriage? No, or it will increase their likelihood of divorce. The, the idea is called trial marriage. So it's like a test run of a marriage. And the theory has been, yeah, that it's going to enable better match quality. So, I mean, look, we can check. We can we have these large data sets that I, I and others use with hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of women, I think, over the last several decades. And we can ask these questions. We can say, okay, if, if we compare women who did cohabit to women who didn't, how do their divorce probabilities vary? And the answer is that if you cohabit, you're more likely to divorce. There is a, a divorce penalty, or you can call it a penalty, a divorce penalty associated with cohabitation. Essentially, this is a way of saying that like, what really happens with cohabitation is, is two things. First of all, who cohabits isn't random, right? So like, if you're cohabiting, it's often because, because you're not quite sure about the relationship yet. You want to take a next step. You're just not confident about marriage yet, which might speak to, you know, lower match quality to begin with. But secondly, a lot of cohabitation just happens kind of people slide into it. It's like they just, they're just spending the night a lot. And then somebody goes, ah, maybe I'll start moving more stuff over. And then like, if in, and you still pay rent for like a year or whatever. And then you yeah. Scott Stanley. Move in, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Scott so Stanley this. talks about um, that. And those things in particular, like decisions are very useful for people. Making clear decisions is associated with like even making bad decisions, is, if you actually make it as a decision, you're better off than doing it accidentally. Like you, you don't want to do things on autopilot in your life, just in general. You should exercise agency at every opportunity you can. And so the upshot of this is that there's a lot of selection in the cohabitation of people who might be lower match quality to begin with. And some other research I've read, and these are all just theories that social psychologists have put out there about why cohabitating has a divorce penalty, is that with cohabitation, you can slide into the relationship and then you can slide out of it. And so if you do that before mm -hmm. marriage, it could kind of prime you like, well, you know, if I don't like the relationship, I can just get out of it. Again, it's a theory. I don't know if you can prove it, but that's one thing I've read. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's absolutely a possibility. You know, I, it's, it's hard to test what's going on inside people's brains, but yeah, I mean, it could create kind of bad habits also, the expectation of cohabitation might change your search protocol, so to speak, okay? So, like, let's say that you expect to marry directly, that is, with no cohabitation. Because you don't get to do that test run, you're going to look for other ways to investigate mate quality, okay? Like, you're going to try and find other ways to figure out if this is a good mate. And one of the big ways you would do that is investigating their family background, right? That you try and meet the family, meet them a lot, hang out with them a lot, learn about their background because people's family is a good proxy for them. Sorry if you don't like your family, but the truth is statistically, you're going to be a lot like them in your life. So historically, that's how marriage happened, right? Marriage generally involved a lot of family to family interaction. You know, that's the origin in the traditional marriage ceremony of, you know, if anyone has any reason why these two cannot be joined together, let them speak now or forever hold his peace, right? That's asking, you've got all the families together and you're supposed to look around and be like, do you do you recognize anybody? Is this an incestuous marriage that they didn't realize? But like, you know, look around, make sure nobody knows each other too well. So you used to do a lot of this kind of family level investigation. That doesn't happen anymore. A lot of people, like their first time meeting their partner's family will be like, you know, after they move in together or something. 
So instead of investigating sort of the, the social context and community that a partner might be in, their family, church, whatever, because we live more atomized social lives where we're more detached from these institutions of, of community support and community engagement, instead, we deepen the level of inspection of the individual themselves by getting them in our house and in our bed. Well, related to this idea of deepening uh, your inspection of a partner, people are dating longer before getting married. You know, they're playing the field longer. And even when they do find someone they commit to, they date them longer before they get married. So as a result, uh, has there been a shift in the age of first marriage in the United States? Yeah, there's been a huge shift. So today, according to the census, the median age at first marriage for women is, I think, like 28 and a half. And for men, it's 30 and a half. That's way up from like the low 20s, like 20, 21, 22 in the 50s and 60s. Now, that low value in the 50s and 60s was anomalous. If you go back to like the 19th century or the early 20th century, typical marriage was in like the mid 20s you know, 25, 26. So, you know, getting back to a median age of marriage of like 21, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily like good or desirable. I mean, those marriages did have high divorce rates and dissatisfaction with the state of gender relations in America in the 1940s, 50s, 60s gave rise to the world we inhabit today. So just trying to recreate the world that gave us the world we have today is, is I, I don't know, it seems like a losing bet. But Today, having you know men marrying at 31 instead of in the past at 25 or 26, you know we don't have to get back to 21, but maybe we could get back get back to 25 or 26. Like that was like 2007. That wasn't like a hellscape. Okay, that was not that long ago that we were at that level. What are the downsides of delaying marriage? Uh, you know, from your research, like what happens to a person's life cycle if they put off marriage later and later in life? Well, it depends on what you want in life. If you're let's let's say you're a man. You want career success. Marriage is kind of a take it or leave it offer. Marriage doesn't have big effects on men's career trajectories. Maybe slightly positive, but it's not a big effect. So if if what you value in life is career success, getting married later probably doesn't hurt you. Maybe what you value in life is uh, leisure, you know, having lots of leisure time. There, marriage is a, an interesting thing to calculate because on the one hand, you know, you might have another person that you sometimes have to take care of if she's sick or out of work or something, but also in principle, she can take care of you if you're sick or out of work. And leisure is nice, but also most people like to have leisure with others. Marriage is a, is a good, pretty fairly secure way of ensuring that you've got somebody that you really, really like to hang around you with all the fun things you want to do in life. So there are, you know, multiplicative benefits to the hedonic value of leisure if you've got somebody you really care about to share it with. And marriage could be a vehicle to lock that in. So if what you care about is leisure, marriage, you know, might be, might be good. There's some trade-offs, but it might be good. But if what you care about is making a lasting impact on the world, like leaving something behind when you die, marriage is, is you really want to get married young right? Because the main thing you're going to leave behind is your genetic material, your children. And beyond that, your cultural material, the, the, the traditions, ideas, values, behaviors, practices that you pass on to your children. And delayed marriage uh, dramatically alters your odds of having any given number of children. The later you get married, the, I mean, it's almost a perfect correlation. I mean, the, the later you marry, the fewer children you end up having. And that's true across many countries, across time, late marriage, less kids. So if you want to leave something behind when you die, a kind of legacy, something something that will carry on the, the life projects that you value, the traditions of meaning and substance that you contributed to, which personally, that's what I want, then you don't want to dilly-dally on getting married because getting married tends to give you the kind of high security relationship where you and your your wife can have a more productive negotiation about specialization, right? You can say, look, okay, you know, one of us is going to step back from work for a few years to focus on this other thing in our family. Maybe it's kids, maybe it's something else, care of a relative, I don't know, because, you know, we really value that and, you know, we're going to kind of cross-subsidize each other here. So marriage, insofar as it enables specialization, can enable you to really advance your kind of dyadic contribution to valued life projects. Well, speaking of kids, there's been a lot of articles I've seen in the news about people having fewer kids. What's going on with the reason why people are having fewer children these days? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, fertility's fallen a lot in the U.S., but it depends on the time horizon, right? So, like, if you go back to like the baby boom, fertility was like I don't know, like three kids per woman or something. It was quite high. I don't have it on hand, um, but it was quite high. And then it declined to like 1.7 in like the 70s. People were like, "Oh, fertility's super low, population decline." But then we had immigration reform, and we got a lot of immigrants. And two things happened with those immigrants. One, we got a lot of immigrants, and that increases population. And two, they were largely from Latin America. And at that time, fertility rates in Latin America were quite high. When people migrate, they tend to replicate a lot of the cultural forms of their place of origin. Women moved to the U.S. and they had babies, particularly because the U.S.'s birthright citizenship also creates a pretty favorable calculus for having children here if you're a non-citizen. So what happens in the 70s, 80s? 90s fertility rose. There, it wasn't also. It wasn't just Hispanic immigrant fertility. Native-born fertility rose. White, non-Hispanic white fertility rose somewhat. So we we got this kind of little fertility boom in the the 80s, 90s, and into like the mid 2000s. But then in 2007, when when our fertility rates were like you know 2.07 or something, so like right at quote unquote replacement rate. Replacement rate is basically how many kids you need to have for society to replace itself, assuming its current level of mortality, which in the U.S. replacement rate is like 2.03, 2.04. Though it also technically depends on the sex ratio of children, so that's a whole different thing. But regardless, fertility rates started falling since 2007, and they were at 2.07 in 2007, I think, or 2008, one of those. Uh, today, they're like 1.66. So we've lost about 0.4 children per woman which is to say basically every other woman is missing a child versus her 2007 counterfactual fertility in the last uh, 16 years or something. The thing to understand about this is that there's, there's multiple different things going on here. Like explaining fertility decline from the baby boom to the 1980s, you're going to have a different set of factors than the decline from like 2007 to today. Right. So like from the baby boom to the 1980s, you could tell a story of like, you know, women's rights, women's entrance into the workforce, you know, no-fault divorce, I don't know. There's all these stories you could tell that are kind of the stories people are used to hearing about fertility, right? Like um, contraception was big, yada, yada. But like those stories don't really apply to the last 15 years. Like, yes, contraceptive use did rise some, and particularly of long-acting removable contraceptives, which is the most effective form, but abortion rates fell over a lot of that window. And, uh, and furthermore, although unintended fertility fell over that period, intended fertility also fell. So what's going on there? Why, why did intended fertility fall? That's not a contraceptive story. This decline from 2007, it's not like we all got tons more prosperous. Like we didn't just have like some, like this story of like development and women's liberation. Like women aren't like, what, what 20% more liberated now than they were in 2007. Okay. Like that's just, I, I mean, I don't know what that would mean to say that, but like, the reality is we just have lower fertility without a big change in a lot of these sort of conceptual big drivers of the 20th century decline. So what caused it? I've argued that most of the decline is due to postponed marriage. But if you look at marital fertility rates, so fertility rates of married people, they really have not declined very much. Virtually the whole decline is among, is just fewer people being married. So we're really looking at a change in entrance into marriage and a feeling among young people of preparedness for marriage. And so you really need to explore, okay, well, why did that happen? I mean, that's it's a complicated question with a lot of different elements, but um, suffice to say, the biggest component of the decline in fertility is lack of entrance into marriage. All right. So fewer people are getting married or they're waiting too long to get married so they can't, yeah. they don't have kids. So, I mean, exactly. I know you said there's a lot of factors going into like why people are choosing to postpone marriage, but like, what are some of them? Like, what have you found? You don't have to get too in the weeds with this, but yeah. I'm, I'm curious. So when we think about these timing issues, like number of children is something that people plausibly choose. Okay. Like they choose to have more or fewer conditional on some other factors, but when you get married or like when you do something is less a matter of choice strangely enough, because like in principle, you know, a woman can just kind of go and have children, assuming she's fertile, right? You know, through IVF or sperm donors or just unprotected promiscuous sex, like this can happen. But the timing is, is, is a bit more complicated for something like marriage, because first of all, it takes two to tango. So you need somebody else to agree. 
But second of all, timing decisions are really, really strongly socially normed. So if you think about the life course, if I were to ask, like, when should you graduate high school? Well, you'd probably say around 18. But why would you say around 18? Is it because we have some like research that suggests that 18 is the optimal age to finish high school? No, we'd say, well, you just should because that's when you usually do. Like if you finish it at 16 because you dropped out, that's bad. If you finish it at 16 because you're a super genius, I guess that's maybe good. If you finish it at 20, that's maybe better than not finishing it, but it's not great. So, but like ultimately all we're really saying is the norm is to do it at 18. Like it's not like we have like great reasons to believe that this is like the perfect age to end high school. So uh, it's just it's just a norm. Likewise, if we say, you know, what age should you finish college? Well, most of us are going to be like, I don't know, like 22. Why? Because 18 plus four. Okay, it's not like we like have some deep methodical consideration of the optimal duration of college education. No, a BA takes about four years. And if somebody was like, well, would you prefer to choose a three-year BA program? It's like, well, there aren't three-year BA, or there aren't many three-year BA programs. Maybe I'd choose it if I could, but like, this isn't a choice I really have. And then if you think about like, okay, people don't usually want to get married when they're in school, right? It's just, they, they don't. I mean, there's a big spike in marriage the summer after graduation. And so as people spend more years in school, college, graduate, PhD, whatever, all those are rising, everything is pushed later. And as educated people have their norms pushed later, it also filters down to other people, right? We all inhabit a society and to some extent we share norms. And then there's, there's other things, you know, because you're much later in life when you are done with school and quote unquote ready for marriage, you also have more adult habits formed, right? Like you're not founding a life with someone else, you're kind of merging lives with somebody else. And so coordinating two fully fleshed out adult lives is a lot harder than coordinating two kind of wet behind the ears young people who haven't figured out life yet, right? You have the two body problem. If you get married and graduate college together, figuring out where to move to get jobs is a lot easier than if you're in your mid twenties and one of you or late twenties and one of you gets a job offer somewhere, right? Because you're just more flexible early in life. And so education, social norms, you know, norms about how long you should date and, and be engaged. I mean, it used to be, you know, six months was a, a very reasonable length of engagement. But now, like, people do, like, two-year engagements. It's insane. So, you know, these are just social norms about timing that emerge. And why do they emerge? You know, we could get all into stuff about why they emerge and underlying economic factors. But at the end of the day, everything in our society is motivating towards extended adolescence. And if you want to find like a deep underlying factor of this, though, it's it both explains too much and too little. You could point to basically the fact that we're becoming a human capital intensive economy where you get ahead by acquiring a lot of human capital for yourself, which means education, experience, skills. And what that means is peak income comes later in life. And income is a way that people signal mate fitness. And then beyond that, because we're a human capital intensive economy, people are more discriminatory in their mating. There's been some shift in assortative mating, though this is somewhat debated, but I believe it, that suggests that people may be more aggressively trying to sort on the, the observable characteristics of their partner. Now, the joke is on us because it turns out, if you care about anything like genetic, you really shouldn't look at your partner's genetic characteristics. You should look at their parents' genetic characteristics. Well, you should look at your partner, but you should look at their parents' genetic characteristics and their cousins and stuff, because that gives you a way better proxy for the latent traits of your partner than what they choose to reveal to you when they want to be in your pants. So again, this is like the second time I've done this pitch, but we should really bring back getting to know people's families. But regardless, all these factors work together to push marriage and everything in life later. Like if you look at like age of first home ownership, that's later. If age of first anything is later. Like people are getting their driver's license later in life than 20 years ago. Right. And then because they're pushing marriage back so far might mean they don't have the number of kids that they want. And that's the interesting thing. You've, exactly. you've done studies on this that people are having fewer kids, but then when you ask women how many kids they want, it's actually more. Like they, it's quite a bit more than they're yeah. having. Men and women alike both say they want to have about 2.5 kids-ish. Depends on how you word the question. If you word the question, instead you ask how many kids do you intend to have, you'll get answers around 2, 2.1. But intentions aren't really desires, right? Intentions are kind of a compromise between desires and reality. If you ask any kind of desire question, what people want, what they think would make them happiest, what their ideal is, yada, yada, they give you between like 2.2 and 2.7 as their answer on average. That's true for men and women. There's not much difference between the two on this 
particular question. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, people want to have more kids and that's been true for a while. Now, fertility desires did fall in the 1950s and 60s. People used to say they wanted about 3.5 kids. Now they, they want about 2.5. And that fall happened around the same time that fertility fell after the baby boom. And so, yeah, people want about 2.5-ish, but they are going to have in the U.S. currently about 1.6, 1.7, which means the average woman will have 0.8 fewer children than she wants, which means if you take 10 women, eight of them will be missing a child that they wanted to have. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? when I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. 
Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So we talked about the reason why that's happening, or one of the reasons that why that's happening is, well, people are pushing marriage back. So you might not have the, the time you need to have the kids you want or desire. But then also people talk about, well, I, I don't, maybe I want three kids, but kids are so expensive. So I'm only going to have two. Is that a reason, like, is, is the cost of raising a kid a reason that's holding people back from having the kids they want? Yeah. I mean, both in kind of empirical studies and in surveys, I mean, lots in surveys, tons of people report child cost factors as reasons they're not having more kids. And we have dozens of empirical studies showing that if you reduce the cost of having children, people have more children, which that suggests that, yes, the cost of child rearing is a factor that's reducing fertility. If we can find ways to reduce the cost of child rearing, we will have more babies. But that is not as simple as it sounds, okay? So think of it this way. Like, let's say that we decide we want to reduce the cost of child rearing. And the way we do it is by making free child care. Okay. So now child care is free. Everybody can have it. Well, now, because it's free, everybody can have it, which means lots of people will have it, which means everybody will take it for granted that they should have it. The norm of what you need to have for people to feel like they have enough to have kids will rise, right? Mm. And that extra money that you have on hand, well, actually, there won't be that much because it'll be tax finance, so your tax will go up. But whatever. Some people have extra money on hand. Where will it go? Are they just like before they were spending it on child care for their kid? Are they now not going to spend it on, spend it on their kid? No. Children are a bottomless pit of money. <laughs> you can always find something else to spend money on for your kids. <laughs> like, like this is ridiculous. The idea that giving people childcare means they're going to like now just like squire it away. No, they're going to spend it on their kids. They're just going to spend it on something else. Now, something else might be, you know, might be good, but, but the point is they're going to spend it on something else. The consumption norm will rise. Okay. The point is, you know, you can just have children and like raise them like the Amish and it's really cheap. Okay. But like, you don't want to do that. And the reason we don't want to do that is because people assess their well-being by comparison to others. And, you know, of course we do it this way. It's totally reasonable that we would assess our well-being by comparing to others because we don't have, it's not like in our brains, we have some intrinsic measure that just like knows that we are well off. So in practice, yes, we define our happiness by comparison to others that's okay to an extent, you know, there's an extreme version of that that's not, but like, it's reasonable to look around at others and be like, okay, like, you know, how am I doing? And at the end of the day, if the, the norm for spending on children is so high that you have to forego a lot of goodies that your comparison group is not foregoing, you're not going to have kids. So this is, there's a fascinating line of research that looks at fertility contagion. And they find that like, if you're the great study, this looked at workplaces, like large offices, with lots of workers. And they found that when a coworker who sits close to you has a baby, you become more likely to have a baby than when a coworker who sits like on a different floor or farther away from you. There's, there's a bunch of studies looking at contagion showing that people's fertility behavior is sensitive to the fertility behavior of others in their life. Okay. As they see other people having kids, they go, okay, maybe I will too. And the reason is as other people start to give up some of those goodies to have kids and put money into kids, you don't face the same relative losses because now you can give it up because you're ahead now. So you can afford to give it up. Okay. So it sounds like the absolute cost of raising a kid is holding people back from having more, but there's also just, it's a matter of how people think they're faring compared to other people who maybe don't have kids. So if society if society society wants to encourage people to have more kids, maybe you know maybe their fertility rate has fallen below the replacement level and they want to encourage people to have more kids, they need to work on both of those things. Yeah, so like cost factors matter, but the important thing to understand is that there's a relative component to them and it's a component that's intensely normative. And so that means to reduce the cost of child rearing and have more kids, yes, we should do things to financially support families. Yes, absolutely, we should. I want to be clear that that's good. The research suggests that giving families more money does get you more babies. And the price tag on it is not that high compared to other things the government does. You can get... If all you care about, if like you're like super utilitarian man and you want to do like quality adjusted life years, the public cost per quality adjusted life year added from pronatal policy, that is birth subsidies, it's way cheaper than trying to increase quality adjusted life years than like 
expanding Medicare or Medicaid or something like that. Pronatal policy is cheap on utilitarian grounds, though. Whether you should trust utilitarian grounds is a debate. But although we should throw money at this, that's not all we need to do. We also need to discipline consumption norms. Now, one way you could do this would just be to, you know, set off a large electromagnetic weapon near all of the Instagram servers. Because what's going on is is it's not a coincidence that fertility started falling after 2007 and kind of never came back. It wasn't just the recession. It was the advent of social media, I think, that created a supercharged kind of comparison. And that's why this decline has happened all over the world. It's not just in the U.S. So all basically everywhere that has a cell phone, fertility starts declining around this time. And so what we want to do is we want to find ways to nudge algorithms to show people more babies, less solo vacations to Tahiti. And we need to be promoting parenting norms of like, well, I just heard a great example recently. Somebody was like, you know, when I was growing up, I always ate canned peaches. They're like, that was the fruit that my parents gave me, canned peaches. Well, recently I was in the grocery store and I was like in this like section where it's like all, you know, fruit for kids. And like, there weren't canned peaches. They were not there. Instead, what fruit are parents giving their kids at the parks where I live? Berries. Okay. Like blackberries, blueberries, strawberries. If you're a middle-class family at the park, you don't get, you know, a preserved peach cup out. You get a thing of fresh raspberries and it's like four times as expensive. (laughs) And so the norm changed. So we really need Culturally, it's, it's hard to know what role government would have in this. Maybe there's some. I'm open to that. But really, there's a cultural thing. We need to push back on this. We need to like like defend lazy parenting. <laughs> Not negligent, okay? I don't want to go too far. But like, like I'm, I'm very in favor of like okay parents. Like I'll admit, like I am an okay parent. I am not parent of the year. My wife, my wife is. But like in general, I'm very – think we should be much more favorable to like middling parents and like super high intense parents. We should like socially stigmatize this. It's, it's just partly because also we know it doesn't actually do much to help children. Like there's a real benefit when you shift from like negligent to like middle third or, you know, 75th percentile of like parental intensity, but like the shift from like 75th percentile to like 99th is not helping kids very much. So we should really stigmatize this. Like send your kids outside and close the door. (laughs) Give them, give them cheap fruit cups. (laughs) We need to have clear norms that if you spend a lot of time and money on your kids, like it's taboo. So, okay. I love this. This is really interesting. So people's increased, we call it desired consumption level has gone up as standard living has gone up and you and it's a social contagion. You see everyone else is doing this. I need to have that. Well, kids might put a hamper on that vacation, so I'm not going to have kids so I can go on the vacation. But then also there is this idea of intensive parenting. You think, well, man, if I want to be a good parent, I got to give the berries. I got to take them to the baseball coach and get them the tu- the Kumon tutor. And we're going to have all the, you know, these fantastic parties inspired by Pinterest. And because people see that, they're like, yeah, that's a lot of work. I'm just going to have two kids instead of four kids because I can't do that for four kids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's you know, that this hyper-intensive parenting is, is a huge factor. And I should say, like, you know, I've done – I run these surveys and, um, you know, agreement with statements related to high-intensity parenting is associated with way, way lower fertility. Yeah. Yeah, the, the high-intensity parenting is – is really interesting because you you'd think those parenting norms won't affect you, but they do affect you. I mean, I think all parenting norms affect you, and I, that can be used for good or for ill. I mean, here's an example that I'm seeing in my own life with my kids. So I got a son who's in middle school, and a lot of his friends are starting to get cell phones, and so there's this social pressure, you know, like my kid wants a cell phone. And if, if I don't get him a cell phone, then he'll you know be out of the loop with his friends. And so you kind of have to band together with other parents and be like, hey, how about we all not let our kids get cell phones until high school? It has to be like this collective thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing is that parenting is a collective project. And this is, this is what we often don't get in our kind of atomized modern societies that like, like parents can't do it themselves. They engage in combinations with other parents to do collective projects because a lot of parenting is very collective. Like kids 
develop these norms among them based on what they allow. And you do want to find parents who do things similarly because, again, kids judge their own well-being by comparison just like we do. So we want to give them comparisons that don't put us in a rough spot. Um, uh, you, you want your kid to be at a similar level of, of subjective consumption assessment as their peers. And so that means like you really want to, yeah, create these collaborations. So uh, I think the takeaway there, kids don't have to be high intense. They, they don't have to take a lot of time. Like you said, you can just be like, all right, here's the fruit cocktail, kid. You get your one cherry. <laughs> I haven't had one of those. I don't think my kids have ever had a fruit cocktail. I'm going to have to go get them a can of fruit cocktail and then have the birthday party at McDonald's. You don't need to go to the the jump zone. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My kids love McDonald's so much. I think think actually two of them may be at McDonald's right now with my wife. You know, I don't don't want to make this sound like, you know, we're two dudes talking about this. Um, So, you know, it's easy for this like opposition to intensive parenting to sound like, sound like saying like, oh, those crazy moms. This is not what I'm saying. You know, Parenting is, it does take time. It does take effort. There is a certain level of money that it does take. And the work that parents do, particularly parents who are primary caretakers do, is incredibly valuable and important. But what I wish we understood better as a society is that most of the value and importance of what parents do is explained by the shift from like bottom percentile parental investment to like 60th percentile parental investment, okay? So not like 85th to 99th percentile investment, okay? What I wish we'd do a better job is really speaking value and appreciation into like the average parent who's done most of the work that needs to be doing. And we would do less valorizing of like the super parent who, you know, does, you know, 36 hours of homemade craft decorations for their two-year-old's birthday party. And I'm right. like, yeah. like, no, no, we like, no, mm-mm. we made like a cardboard cutout of like, I think we bought a pinata and like, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> like just, so I, I, I want to try and thread the needle of like excessively intensive parenting, you know, not good. Makes all of us worse off. I work from home. And so like, I'm really involved in my kids' lives. I'm taking them to school, picking them up from school. And mm-hmm. I've, you know, taking them to practices, taking activities. And because of that, you know, I'm always looking for ways. It's just like, okay, what can we do to like make this easier for everybody? And that mm-hmm. means like saying no a lot, you know, we're not going to do traveling teams. We're not going to yep. go to this activity. And I always tell, you know, I imagine like, I always do this thing when like trying to figure out what to do with my kids. I'm like, I'm, imagine it's 1985. What would my mom tell me? And I'd be like, well, okay, you can go do that. Go outside, go shoot the basketball. Just you're fine. Uh, you don't have to be uh, holding their hand the entire time. Let's shift over to another topic because you've done some research on declining religiosity in the United States. And the common narrative on this subject is that people leave religion as adults because uh, of the increasing secularization of society or because you know, they became disillusioned with faith because of, you know, scandals in churches. But your research shows that the decline in religiosity starts when you're a child and still living with your parents. Walk us through those findings. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a religious guy. Um, my wife and I are, are uh, church workers as well. And uh, so you hear this story a lot, like, oh yeah, we had all of our you know, good Christian kids. And then they went to college and those liberal professors contaminated them and they left the faith. But as a sociologist, I was always a little skeptical of this because like my impression had always been that the research suggested that like religious ideas were socialized fairly young. And so recently I, there was this book that came out, The Great Dechurching, that was, it was really interesting. It's, it's an interesting read. I, I enjoyed it. But it made this really strong argument that uh, there was a de-churching that happened basically to 20-somethings and to some extent 30-somethings. That like they were religious kids and then they grew up and they stopped going to church because of all these different things that happened. Science or change in life circumstances or whatever. And I, just reading it, I was just very skeptical of this. So I, I put together all the data I could find on child religion. So usually when we do surveys, we survey adults because it's easy to survey. Well, comparatively easy to survey adults. Kids, we don't survey very much. They, you know, their contact info cannot be distributed as freely as adults legally. 
they're just part of survey. Very young kids can't take surveys, right? Like they don't have their own phones. They don't have their own email address. Like what do you, how do you, how do you get kids? Although increasingly they, they do have phones and email addresses, but so, but there are some surveys. Some of them are in school. Some of them are really high quality kind of scientific research surveys that were able to get a bunch of kids. And what I show is across three or four different surveys, all the evidence suggests by age 13, children are already way more secular than their parents are. They continue to secularize until maybe age 21. And there is virtually, there's very little net loss of faith after age 21. Yes, there are people who leave the church after age 21, but there are also people who convert after age 21. And on net, it approximately balances out. Whereas under age 21, and really particularly under age 18, you just have this really dramatic rise in secularization. I show this in cross-sectional data and in longitudinal data in multiple different sources, taken at different times, using different methods. And what I'm able to show is that child secularization has moved younger and has gotten more intense. So in 1993, about 12% of eighth graders said religion was not at all important to them. About 13% of 10th graders said religion was not at all important to them. And about 15% of 12th graders. So 12, 13, 15 from 8th, 10th to 12th grade. Okay. In 2000 and 2005 or so, it was still about 13% for 8th and 10th graders, but it was about 17% for 12th graders. So 12th graders started secularized, but 8th and 10th graders did not. They stayed the way they were. In 2013, about 15% of 8th graders were not at all religious. So it had risen a bit, but not a lot. 20% of 10th graders were not at all religious. And about 23% of 12th graders, which means 12th graders secularized a lot more. 10th graders secularized a lot more. And crucially, the gap between 10th and 8th graders grew a lot, which means secularization was happening in 9th and 10th grade. And then if you look at today or the most recent data, which is, I think, 2021, about 29% of 12th graders are not at all religious, about 27% of 10th graders, and about 23 or 24% of 8th graders, which means now tons of this secularization is happening before 8th grade. That's really striking. To me, that says that secularization of children is moving earlier and earlier and earlier. Why is that happening? Well, I mean, I think social media is a big part of that story, right? That Kids now inhabit these totally adult, unsupervised online spaces where they interact with much older people and where their life is more contaminated by these kind of adult things. So I think that that's one of the factors. But in general, I, I think this is just a case of American parents not trying very hard to pass on religion. Okay, so we oftentimes think that society is becoming less religious because Adults undergo, you know, a faith deconstruction, faith crisis, you know, and then leave religion. But the data actually shows that faith loss largely happens in childhood. And it, that's because, you know, the baby boomer, Gen X, millennial parents, they aren't religious themselves. And then they're not passing on religion to their kids. Uh, well, yeah, but no, I mean, I'm saying even among religious parents okay. are, lazy, are pretty lazy. There's a nice book called Handing Down the Faith. I, I reviewed it a couple of years back for Christianity Today, where they do this really comprehensive qualitative and quantitative study of religious parents in the U.S. And they show that most religious parents in the U.S. believe what I would call the backlash myth. And the backlash myth is this. If you you know, do too much overt, explicit religious instruction in your house, your children will react against your religion and they'll end up less religious than if you'd done nothing at all. Okay. This is the backlash myth. There's no empirical support for this idea. This is totally wrong. Every shred of empirical evidence we have, including some that's, I think, plausibly causal, suggests that the more effort that society, parents, schools, whatever, the more effort you put into passing on the faith to your children, the likelier they are to share your faith. Like it's, it's very straightforward. Try hard, get better results. But parents don't believe this. American parents deeply believe in the backlash myth. It's hard to persuade them against it. They think that if they do something that their kids don't like, that their kids will hate everything they stand for. Um, and this is, this is just not, this is just totally untrue. There's no serious 
high-quality research to support this, this model, and yet it's widely believed. And the result of this is that American parents really forego a lot of their influence. They don't do a lot of explicit teaching to their children about the faith at home. They don't lead a lot of religious activities at home. They don't lean on their kids to be involved in religious communities. People just assume that their kids are going to absorb the religion, and it doesn't matter what environment they surround their kid with. So, yeah, religiosity is declining, not because adults are converting, for the most part, but because children are never absorbing their parents' faith at considerable rates. And that's largely because parents are not making great efforts to pass it on. And I should say, I, I, I'll say something in defense of American parents, okay? So like, you know, not just American parents, this, this ever, you know, 80 years ago, parents didn't need to do that much because our society was so suffused with religion that parents could just do a bit to kind of give some extra firepower and a relatively religious society would do most of the work socializing the child into the faith. That is no longer the case, but parents haven't caught up. They haven't realized that they now have to substitute for all that stuff society used to be doing. And this is a place where I just said all this stuff like against intensive parenting. And this is one place where I think we should be way more intense. <laughs> um, like do less intensive parenting at like, making sure your kid has 57 different talents and goes to all these activities and you don't need to monitor every moment of their play and stuff, but like intentionally, concretely lead everyday religious activities in your household every single day. The day should not pass where your child does not see you leading the family in practices of faith if you want your religion to be passed on to your child. Well, Lyman, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? You can follow me on Twitter at LimonstoneKY, or you can always just uh, find me at various places online, Institute for Family Studies and, and some other places. Yeah, you've got, I think you've got some articles in The Atlantic, correct? Yeah, I'm all over the place. You're all over the place. All right, well, Lyman Stone, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Good talk to you. My guest today was Lyman Stone. He is a sociologist and demographer. You can find more information about his work on his Twitter or X site, whatever you want to call it, at LimonstoneKY. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash family myths, where you find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanlage.com, where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on a podcast or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you time to listen to the AM Podcast to put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.